0: If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You
1: can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. economic indicators
0: who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature
2: this podcast is powered by a cast
0: I tell you, John, I was down on Ushers Key on the keys yesterday morning, <laughs> collecting the Vespa from Scooter Island.
2: Oh yeah, on oh, no, Scooter Island,
0: very good guys—a father and son combo there—and they were just delivered this thing of beauty. I'm
2: surprised they didn't sell you a park and the whole shebang.
0: I'm getting the fox, the fox glove, award. more mirrors, more, more mirrors, mirrors. <laughs> exactly, ace face. But now I have it.
2: It's fantastic. It's gorgeous, but you do have to bring. it. It's a bit squeaky clean.
0: It's very squeaky clean. It's very squeaky clean. It's like new
2: boy in the glass. It's so exciting here because we've been waiting for weeks for this thing to turn up.
0: It is now, John, you're on the back of the Vespa with me, looking particularly feminine and attractive. (laughs) Let's go to Brighton. Let's go to Bray first. (laughs) Anyway, how are you doing, my head? Is life treating you well? Are you now looking forward to the fourth incarnation of the lockdown? Oh, man.
2: I was out walking with some of my mates yesterday, and they were ranting and raving. Bill was ranting, as he always does, but he's dead right. He's dead right.
0: Well, let's talk about it. Let's get in. Okay, we're going to do podcast, two bits, John, today. We're going to do first bit. We're going to talk about why Ireland is the way it is with respect to the economy, with the lockdowns, with the death rates, et cetera, right? Yep. And I have a very interesting take on this, my man. Ooh. Second one is we're going to celebrate the sleeper, Joe Biden. Sleepy Joe. Sleepy Joe was obviously a man. He started his presidential campaign in 1988. He gets there 31, 32 years later. Yeah. And it's a long campaign. It's a lot. Exactly. But it's quite <laughs> clear to me that this is a guy who's been waiting to do this job all his life. Mm. And he knew exactly what he was going to do on the first day. And he hasn't missed a beat. So it's a phenomenal process to observe a president that knows exactly what they want. They've been waiting for it. They've been figuring out how they're going to do it. He's hitting the ground running. He's introduced another $2 trillion expansion. We're going to talk to Paul McCulley quite soon, who's got something very interesting to say about bonds, he's Paul Macaulay, who was the king of the bond market. Yeah, he's been on a few times. He now thinks, and he was the brains behind the biggest bond fund in the world, PIMCO. He now thinks, and he's just going to talk to us now in a second about it, that we're going to have the biggest bear market in bonds for the next two or three decades.
2: Okay, you're going to have to explain that one to me, what it means and and all the rest. We'll get to that.
0: Let's talk about Ireland and the lockdown. So, your mates were ranting the other night.
2: Yeah, all ranting. Well, everybody is. And like you, you kind of hook up with people, social distancing, of course, masks on. But, you know, th- there's, there's very little to talk about, only COVID, well, because it's occupying our minds constantly, because it's impacting every single aspect of our lives.
0: I've got here's my take. Yeah. Right. And it's a take based on demography. The one thing that the Neffert guys are saying, and the HSE guys are saying, when it comes to looking at they say, well, look, Ireland's absolute numbers in terms of deaths per 100,000 are amongst the lowest in the EU. Right. And they've done reasonably well on that regard. Not the lowest, not the second or the third, maybe the fourth or fifth, right? Yeah. And that's the fact. But here's the take, John. COVID is a disease that kills old people. Ireland is the country with the... Least amount of old people per head in the EU. So if you look at the numbers, Ireland has the least amount of people over the age of 65 as a percentage of our total population. Right. So why is that? Where are all those old people gone? Those old people now live in England. They are the people who emigrated in the 1950s and 1960s. Yes. Four, 500,000 people emigrated to England alone in the 1950s. 300,000 more left in the 1960s. So that's 800,000 people who would have been living in Ireland now, who would have been old, yeah. are now living in the UK. So think what has actually happened. Covid kills older people. Our older people are disproportionately living in the UK. So the reason our numbers are low has got nothing to do with nephid. It's got everything to do with emigration. <laughs> right. That's okay. what's happened. No, but this is this is something that Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of dawned on me the other day because I was looking. You know, I'm a weirdo. I was looking at demographic trends. Of course you are. And I was thinking, where are all the old people in Ireland? They're not here. Therefore, we should have by far and away the best outcomes because we have by far and away the lowest number of old people. Yeah. But we have average to good outcomes. So it means that our total outcomes are horrendous
2: because we have very few
0: old people. And the contrast is, you look at, for example, Italy, when the north of Italy got slammed this time last year most people put it down to the fact that there were lots and lots of old people in the north of Italy and they were they had a, big connections to Wuhan through the textile industry sure so they yeah, got hit first course. they weren't prepared meet old people but then where did those old people come from they came from the south of Italy so in the 1950s southern Italians moved north to work in the industrial north so the South was poor. Right. they moved yeah. so those people are now old in their 70s 80s They're living in the cities of Lombardy and Piedmont and they're susceptible, they're vulnerable, right? Those people in Ireland are living in Coventry, Manchester, London. They're not living here. Mm. So we got a free ride in COVID and still we locked down more than anybody else and still our numbers are worse than a country like Denmark. This is the scandal, John.
2: Okay, talk me through some of these numbers. First of all... Like, what's the average age in Ireland compared to... I mean, you, you pick age, Denmark. We always seem to pick the Scandies, Okay
0: the, Yeah, the, yeah the, the The average, the median age in Ireland is about 37 years old. Right. That's the lowest by far in the European Union, right? Right. But the more interesting statistic is the percentage of the population above 65. Which is what? In Italy, it's 22%. Right. In Ireland, it's 13%. Wow. So 10% of the population are gone, right? Yeah. Where are they? They're in England, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? And as you get older, the percentage falls even more. So Ireland has fewer over 65s, fewer over 70s, fewer over 75s, and fewer over 80 and 85s than anywhere else in Europe because all those people who would have lived here, who were born in Ireland, emigrated. Okay. A mental statistic. In 1965, just on the eve of the half century of this republic after the 1916 Rising, Mm. right? In 1965, two-thirds of the people born, imagine this, in the Irish Free State had emigrated. Two-thirds? Of the people born in this Free State had emigrated. The first 40 years of this was a disaster. So all those really older people aren't here. So they're Mm. not showing up in the COVID statistics. And we're patting ourselves on the back because our rates are the same as Denmark, for example. Yeah. But the Danes have much more older people, so they should have much higher death rates. And we should have much we should have much much lower death rates. Well, okay,
2: let's talk about the lockdown then. Oh yeah. We've had uh what is it 230 had, odd days. Ireland has of,
0: had the by far and away the most stringent lockdown in the EU. Yeah. 231 days have been lost.
2: I the, felt every single one of them, by the way.
0: Yeah, but so did everybody. Mm. The UK Yeah, 173 days. So we're miles ahead from the UK, right? And we go back to Denmark, 47 days, right? So the Danes have only closed down for 47 days. We have had a lockdown which is five times more stringent than Denmark, and yet fewer Danes have died in total, even though they have that older population. So our performance has been lamentable.
2: But is this... Okay, so... Let's look at the health services then. Like, are we just not spending enough on our health service?
0: Good question, John. Again, because you think, okay, well, protect the health service. The health service is fragile yeah. because the length of the lockdown should be a function of the fragility of the health service. If the health service is really fragile, you lock down to protect it. Yeah, That's it was logic. all
2: about the, the ICU beds and all okay. that kind of stuff.
0: I'm going to tell you something. We spend the fourth highest in the EU on health per head. We spent in Ireland... 4,613 euros per person, per head in the health service. That is
1: four wow. times
0: more than Greece, five times more than Poland, and it only comes fourth after Norway, Finland, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark, and they just spend because they're big welfare states. Right. So we have amongst the highest spending, and you think, okay, so how could our health service be fragile if we spend so much, number one? Mm. And number two, how could we spend so much if our population is so young? Because you're not supposed to spend money on health yeah, if your yeah, population yeah. is the youngest because young people don't get sick. Yeah. So what we're looking at, John, is the HSE is a financial black hole.
2: But I just want to clarify, that is public spending and private spending. As That's in the, the whole thing. That's right. the whole
0: thing. Basically, the vast majority of countries have a dual health system mm. where there's private insurance and public health yeah. living side by side. For example... We, because we live beside the United Kingdom, think the NHS model is normal because we get incessant English news. Yeah, The NHS is completely abnormal. This idea of free at the point of entry with no public health insurance and no private insurance, really unusual system. Yeah, the, Almost everybody operates a system not unlike ours with various different yeah. bits and whistles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that figure is encapsulating all the spending from both sources, no matter if the state pays in public are the private insurer plays in private per person per year. And it is a lamentably high figure for a population that has the youngest population in Europe and the fewest old people in Europe. So we should be spending the least in Europe, and we're spending almost the most. Is it
2: how we're spending the money
0: then? Well, here's another amazing... Today's our number day. It's right. our digging for yeah, numbers, yeah. right? Look at ICU look beds. Look at the old numbers. I, actually, I love a number. I love and a, a good old graph. I love a sum. I know, I know. I, I can tell you stories. But, you know, years ago, Sham would just look at me and say, are you reading charts equations <laughs> in bed she's like what did i marry okay were they not instructions mac no <laughs> i do this a manual too and when yeah, yeah anyway i give you icu beds right because you think okay what are the numbers from the OECD? yeah that was the
2: whole thing to to
0: protect the number of icu so beds we and- spent the fourth most on health per head in the eu our mortality rates in COVID are low, but not particularly low. And they're only low because we've no old people in comparison to everybody else. Okay. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah.
0: We've locked down harder for longer. Now look at the capacity of intensive care beds. Germany has 38.9 ICU beds per 100,000 patients, or so per 100,000 population. Yeah. That's number one in Europe.
2: Right. Ireland, That's to be expected.
0: Ireland has five per 100,000 people. Wow. We are the third lowest. And who's behind us? Mexico. Right?
2: Yeah. Who's ahead of us there?
0: Everyone else. Uh, Japan, Netherlands, Chile, Denmark, Norway, Italy, Australia, Spain, Poland, England, Korea, uh, Switzerland, Canada, Belgium, United States, Austria, and Germany. So you want to be getting sick everywhere else. Yeah. Right? (laughs) And then you've got to ask your question. So we spend all this money. Yeah. We don't have the ICU beds. The system is fragile. We therefore go for longer lockdowns. We go for longer lockdowns, yet the amount of people who are susceptible, the older people, is much lower Mm. than any other country. So your conclusion, John, and it has to be that that our health service is run appallingly, and the money is not going to the front line, right? Because if it was going to the front line, we'd have the beds, right? Yeah, It's obviously... Unbelievably badly managed.
2: Well, from all the medical people that I know, they always talk about the uh, HSC as being layer upon layer of management and not, as you say, frontline workers. Well,
0: I've given you those figures. What will happen after this is going to be a root and branch, has to be root and branch rebuilding destroying and rebuilding the health service. You cannot go on. You You cannot go on spending this much money with these terrible outcomes.
2: Haven't we supposed to
0: have this before? Well, all I'm saying is these numbers don't lie. The reason that Ireland has had a slightly, slightly better than average outcome in terms of total deaths is because the people who would have died in Ireland lived in England. And probably... More people of Irish descent who were born here have died of COVID in England than have died in Ireland. And that's the fact. And you're right. I mean, you you were saying to me, you know, you're not anti-lockdown, nor am I. I'm not anti No, I'll do whatever whatever needs to be done. But we have done so much. Yeah. And now where is the dividend? You know, it's where's the upside? Where is the reopening? Where is the new businesses? Where is the optimism? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? There is no dividend. And that's what's forced us to go and look at the numbers. And then when you look at the numbers in the context of no dividend, John, you realise, wow, something really stinks in this HSE. So, Mark, let's go a little international. A little less parochial. <laughs>
2: yes, maybe just a less
0: Two lads over points saying <laughs> another thing. Yeah. There's the walk. ranting. <laughs> so,
2: Couple of weeks ago, we had Stephanie Kelton on. We did, and she was talking and explaining to us about MMT and the big stimulus package. Yep, that uh, Biden introduced. But apparently, he's introducing another huge,
0: huge yeah. package. Yeah. So, not apparently, he is. Talk to me about. We'll talk. That. We'll talk about Biden after in a few minutes, right? And and what I think is this amazing behavior of a guy who really knew what he wanted and had waited for so, so long and understood how he was going to get it through and all that sort of stuff, right? But the the essence is the following, John, is that the United States has abandoned its economic policy of the last 50 years. Yeah. And what it's doing is it's saying to people, we are going to spend government money to help you. And for the first time since Ronald Reagan, okay? Yeah. They've said, we're going to spend it on poor people, not rich people. U-J. I think that's fantastic. So why, why don't we, and, but to analyze this, we've got to think, okay, what does it mean for people? What does it mean for democracy? And then what does it mean for the big question always, where are you going to get the money? What yeah, does it mean yeah. for financial markets, etc.? So in order to ask that question, I can't think of anyone better than our old mate, Paul McCulley. Preacher Paul. Preacher Paul, again, a guy who really has played at the highest level in American finance. He's retired now from PIMCO. But I can tell you, Paul Krugman, Paul no lesser a man than Paul Krugman, yeah. said of Paul McCulley that once McCulley had resigned or retired from PIMCO, PIMCO started making major mistakes because the brain behind the investment strategy was no longer there. Mm, that's quite that's, a... That's from the Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. So let's go and talk to Paul. Professor Paul McCulley, Paul, what's going on now, the second part, or I mean, actually you, you could argue it's the third part of the, the stimulus uh, since the pandemic, but the second part of the Biden uh, stimulus is roads, railway, schools, hospitals, this sort of stuff.
3: Yes, public investment, categorically public investment. And it's not just in literal tangible infrastructure, but also investment in our people and Overall, you can look at what is on the horizon, assuming that Mr. Biden and our Democratic Congress can get it through, is the modern-day version of Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s, where the government steps up and takes a more meaningful role in our economy. And it doesn't mean that we are going down the path to run and killing capitalism or any of that sort of stuff. What we're doing is we're remixing, if you will, the invisible hand of the markets called capitalism and the visible hand and sometimes the visible fist of government to get a more just society with a more equitable distribution of income which also independent of all that warm and fuzzy stuff is good for the economy because we're going to be shifting shares, the national income down, not up. And as you shift shares of income down, uh, you're shifting it to people who have a higher propensity to consume, which means that the economy has more vibrancy. Uh, What we've learned in recent years, and literally recent decades, If you give a rich man another dollar, it has de minimis impact on aggregate demand because he's already got everything that he wants. So if you do the other and go down with your income distribution, then you get more buoyancy on a continuing basis for aggregate demand.
0: Yeah, that's what I've always said. And a million dollars, you know, a million dollars goes further if it's a million people with one dollar as opposed to one man with a million dollars. Amen, brother. Okay, now listen, so that's what Biden's doing. Up until recently, we would have said the Federal Reserve would have been hawkish, cautious, and would have choked off the aspirations of the politician. What has happened to the Fed that has actually begun to side with the people for once? Paul, traditionally, a central bank would, like the Fed, would have looked at Joe Biden's aspirations and said, Not today, mate. We don't condone this. And we're not going to facilitate this. But the Federal Reserve under Jay Powell has not only facilitated it, but Jay Powell said something quite interesting about overheating economies, which is the fear of many people. He said, for something to be hot, it has to feel hot. I've got to feel the heat. And he's obviously saying, now I'm not feeling the heat yet. What is happening in the Fed That has resulted in this change in policy? Because this this change in policy, as you said, is kind of 1930s type stuff again. It's a big, big change. Where the Fed is right now is the culmination of a long
3: review of their overall strategic framework over the last couple of years. Uh, Jay made it an important part of his mission when he became Fed chair is to mark-to-market, if you will, their strategy to a new reality. So hold on, I'm going to ask
0: you that. What does that mean Paul? Because lots of people listening will never have worked in the markets like you and I. So when you say mark-to-market, the new reality, what, 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 do you, what, do you, what do you mean? To essentially adjust
3: their policy framework to the real world, not the textbook world.
0: Excellent. Now, that is interesting. So they've moved away from what I would call blackboard economics, and gone to the economics of the street.
3: Absolutely, or you could say they've moved from a technocratic framework for policy to a real-world framework for policy. That rather than having a religious belief and models.
0: So this this is such a huge change, and it's a, I mean this goes to the root of. Economic theory, policymaking, statecraft, all these things that that we've spoken about over the years, Paul. But I now want to switch from economics, and I want to put your investment hat on. If you were still pulling the strings at PIMCO, the largest bond fund in the world, and you were sitting down in California, in Newport Beach today, and you were looking at the world as it is now. And your job is to protect the investment of your investors and to make them a bit of money. What would you be saying? What are your big takeaways? What, how would you be positioning these big portfolios now, knowing what you do now about the change in the Fed? In the
3: short run, David, the dominant objective for the investment committee would be not to lose money. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, but well, let's start there. Let's start there. So as I look out in the next decade, I see long-term interest rates continuing to go up. And so that would be the backdrop for investment strategy is prepare for a secular and cyclical bear market in bonds and that uh, being long of interest rate risk having more interest rate risk than the market, if you will, is not going to be a winning strategy going forward. So that would be on the investment side, but equally important, David, I think, and I'm sure this is happening at PIMCO and BlackRock and all the other major players in the space. It's not just an investment strategy issue. It's a business strategy issue. and how should you deploy your capital and your human resources and your talent and actually getting into spaces that have a chance to be in a bull market?
0: People like myself think okay, in a small country like Ireland, if we have things to fix structurally that the state can fix, whether it be housing or infrastructure, whatever, do it now, borrow now and fix the problems so that you'll actually reap the rewards in 10 years time and don't worry so much about the rate of interest and our inflation is that is that the right attitude to take or am i missing something
3: that that is categorically the right idea david you can't say it loudly enough or often enough that we overwon the war against inflation and One of the collateral damages that came about that is a less productive supply side of the economy because of a dearth of public investment, but also gross income and wealth inequality, which erodes the fabric of democracy. So the bottom line is that democracy should exert itself with fiscal policy playing the dominant role and navel-gazing about budget deficits and inflation risk is simply not productive. It's time to actually live life as a just society through the democratic process uh, and quit worrying all the time about the things that we've been worrying about for most of our lives. And the fact that we worried about them as a society meant that it was a wonderful four decades for Wall Street. Now it's time for Main Street or High Street to actually have
0: its time uh, in the sun and enjoy itself. Paul, that was a wonderful ending. A wonderful, wonderful ending. I think it. You know, it's again. It's it's a. It's very, very strange. I just want to give you one last thought before we go. To what extent is thinking caught in an almost a? How would you describe it? It's it's almost like a ritualistic default position in church that. If you repeat the mantra often enough over the last 40 years, which is inflation is wrong and borrowing is wrong and interest rates, and you'll have current account crises, you'll have deficit crises, that eventually it's almost like a reformation is needed in economics to change the thinking of the mainstream. I
3: like that, David. A reformation.
0: And in fact, I
3: think that's actually what's going on in our profession. And it's painful for a lot of people in the profession because essentially it requires a lot of getting honest with self uh, and the human condition finds that to be uncomfortable, particularly if your whole career has been preaching a particular sermon. And if you say, well, that sermon actually was warning about the perils of all of these things, which I now embrace. That's really, really hard for people to do. But I'm optimistic that our profession is making that transformation and will be, you know, led by a new generation in the decades ahead. And it will be not obsessed with things that don't matter, but eagerly engaged about solving societal problems under an umbrella of democracy. And you could put it really simple, David, is that macroeconomics is remorphing to where it was before our lifetime, which is called political economics.
0: Paul, that is a beautifully succinct way of ending this discussion. Paul, that was absolutely great. Great stuff. I just John's nodding his head over here. Love us. I love it, Paul. <laughs> Sounds good.
3: Bye.
2: If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it
1: takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
2: You know what I took out of that chat with, with Paul is Preacher Paul. Yeah is that whole thing of moving away from blackboard economics into real-world economics. This is a new what a renaissance, is it, yes. for, for economics for the American economy? Is well, this a, are we moving into a whole
0: new era? Well, I mean, the first thing is, it, in economics, John, what happens in America happens everywhere else with a lag. It used yeah. to be a lag of a number of years. It could be a lag of a number of months now right? Mm. Because of the way the world is. That's the first thing. The second thing, it is a victory for common sense, right? I've had this difficulty with economic modeling all my life, even though I've done loads of it. And it is the following... You want me to
2: explain it to you? Well, you explain it to me, yeah.
0: It's, <laughs> it's all that weird stuff. It's all the stuff we learned when <laughs> we were kids, right? But think about, models are meant to simulate reality. So if you, for example, want to be a pilot, yeah, right, you go and you go into a simulated flight path, right? So you go in and the simulation is supposed to prepare you for reality. Okay, so if the flight is going to be difficult, you're prepared for it. Economic models are bizarre because they're not based on reality. They're based on mathematics. So economic simulations are drawn on the basis of an economic person, us that is rational. Yeah. We are not rational. So what economic models have always done is they have sacrificed reality for mathematical elegance. Mm. Now, because economics got hijacked, I think, by bad mathematics 20 or 30 years ago, the whole pursuit has gone up this, what I would call this blackboard idea, right? And what Paul was saying there was that in the past, the Federal Reserve was obsessed with what they call leading indicators, Right? So, a leading indicator is something that moves today. You should always hear that in you, news. Yeah, yeah. To tell you five months down the road, something else is going to happen,
2: right? Yeah.
0: So, the Fed, then, if their leading indicators were moving, would raise interest rates before inflation arrived. Right. What he's saying now is they've abandoned that. They're waiting for inflation. And if inflation emerges, then they will raise interest rates. So, that's a totally different idea. So, you're saying with the models, forget them. We're actually going to look at the real world. And if inflation doesn't appear, well, then we, we're not going to worry.
2: Well, actually, that's the other thing he said, which was, you know, we've overwon. That's the, a very American expression. Yeah, we have I never heard that before. But we've overwon the war on in inflation, making the economy less productive on the supply
0: side. Well, what he meant by that is that every time there was a threat of an increase in wages, and an increase in wages should be a good thing. See, I've always taken the view that an increase in wages is a really good sign. That's what you should assume. That's why living in Switzerland is good, because you get paid well. Mm. <laughs> it's much better than living in Bakunafasa because you don't get paid well. Yeah. So nobody can tell me increases in wages are a bad thing. They're a very, very good thing. And if they come against the background of productivity, they're even better. But in since Paul Vocker, who died last year, came into power at the Central Bank in 1980 in America, there has always been... An obsession with inflation so they've always lent against potential inflation so what they've done then is every time there was a recovery or an expansion they crushed the economy with high interest rates and all that did was do one or two things one it ratcheted down wages mm-hmm. and two it ratcheted up unemployment so the man in the street bore the cost yeah, of deflation yeah. this is why The average American's real wages now have been stagnant since the 1980s. But who has made all the money in America are rich people who own assets. This is what we come back to. Mm. And because rich people own assets, inequality has risen. Now, the problem is economics is theology. It's not science. Right. Right, Okay. Okay. (laughs) It's it's, it's called the science
2: preacher, Paul.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's a theology. So you construct your own biblical pulpit bashing arguments With the aid of statistics, Mm. as I've always said, every statistic has an agenda, right? Of course. economists always come and say, the statistics are pure. No, they're not, right? Yeah. And the theology of the last 40 years was crushing inflation. But what it did is it crushed the average guy. Why? Because the average guy and the average girl depend on wages for their income. And if you're crushing their wages, you're crushing their income. Yeah, of course. The other side is, if you allow rich people to have all the readies, what happens is that a billionaire, so a billion is a thousand million, right? So one person with a billion has an impact on the economy, which is tiny in comparison to a million people with a thousand. So you yes. give a million people, a thousand dollars or euros, we're going to have a good time. Yeah. You give one person a billion, what do they do? They hoard it. They get worried about having a good time and they spend all their time going to Davies and places like that to keep their <laughs> money away. Yeah. So the whole idea yeah, 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 is yeah. inequality is bad for the economy, but also... It makes perfect sense, this, yeah. We have a deeper democratic issue, which is you can have democracy or you can have inequality, but you can't have both. Mm. So consider that. Inequality, wealth and income inequality, is inconsistent with democracy because democracy's promise is one man, one vote, equality, fairness. If you have inequality, which is, in effect, one man, lots of votes, because you've yep. got all the readies, it's inconsistent with democracy. So American democracy, European, Irish democracy, is disemboweled is this, by inequality. Is and this, it's threatened and it's made more fragile.
2: And is this what, what Paul was referring to when he said democracy should assert itself through fiscal policy? Exactly. Right. Because
0: fiscal okay. policy helps poor people. Right. Fiscal policy is government spending. Yeah. Now. By definition if you're dependent on government spending you're poor.
2: Yeah. Cuz you cuz
0: you can't afford health services, you can't afford your education, so you're you can't afford housing. So you're a poor person. So poor people are always targeted and biased against by austerity. Cuz rich people they don't care about austerity. Cuz they're not dependent on the state. So what he's saying is fiscal policy is an arm of democracy.
2: Yeah. And and we have been stuck in this system of the economy being driven, particularly since 2008, by monetary policy. Exactly with the, the QE and all that kind of all stuff. All that malarkey. And yeah. of course,
0: as we know, monetary policy makes money available to drive up assets, yeah. asset prices. And we've yeah. said it a hundred times, John. Who owns assets? Rich people or poor people? Rich people. That's why they're rich. Yeah. Because they own shit, right? And if the price of stuff is going up, then the rich guy is doing really well. And the relative position of the poor guy is becoming more and more and more and more unequal and further away from the American dream, the Canadian dream, the British dream, the Irish dream, the German dream. I will do better than my parents.
2: Sure, yeah. I will
0: actually improve myself. And at its very core, the inequality that we've seen, which is explicitly driven by mm. economic policy. In fact, what we've seen is not trickle-down economics up to now. It's hyper-trickle-down, right? right?
2: yeah, yeah.
0: But Joe Biden got in and he said, he's been watching this. This is what I find interesting. Yeah. Biden's obviously, as an American, he's also a blue-collar guy. Do you remember we did the whole thing about the meritocracy? Yeah. Joe Biden, he's not Harvard. He's not Chicago. He's not Columbia. He's not Ivy League. He's a blue-collar guy.
2: He's not the Clinton style. He's not
0: the Clintons. He's not the yeah. Obamas.
2: Yeah, yeah, Obama yeah. Obama yeah.
0: went to Harvard, right? The Obamas, you know, this is African-American, his wife and himself, aristocracy in that world, right? Mm. Joe Biden is not that guy. And he's been watching blue-collar people in his own state of Pennsylvania and then Delaware for the years and years. And everyone thought that Biden was going to be Mr. Centrist. Not centrist dad. Center's granddad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's turned out to be much more radical. Why? Because he's not encumbered by Harvard. And he's not hanging around with Wall Street. And he's not hanging around with Hollywood. And he's not hanging around with Silicon Valley. And he's not so sleepy. And he ain't sleepy, but he was a sleeper. Right. He was okay. waiting for his chance. You know, the Soviets used to have a sleeper agent <laughs> waiting for his chance to emerge. He is a democratic liberal sleeper. Yeah. Who's been waiting for his chance. Now he has it. He's done more in 50 days than Obama did in two terms.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And he wants to do more and more and more. Decipher
2: one more thing for me. I, I in, in all this kind of market speak
0: oh, yeah, that, yeah, that
2: yeah. Preacher Paul and yourself were going on about. Talk to me about the bear market. He was talking about where now we have been in a bull market for how many number of years and now we're moving into a bear market. Yeah. What exactly does that mean? It, and and what kind of impact is that going to have
0: it means that long term interest rates are going to rise and they are going to remain higher than they were for the last 40 years so the last 40 years has been the story of collapsing interest rates mm-hmm. from 22% fed funds rate in 1981 to 0 but that's a huge change over four decades what we're looking at now is because fiscal policy is coming in right and because we're going to hopefully get a little bit more inflation, more wage increases, more equality, yeah. right? We're looking at a situation where long-term interest rates are going to be higher than they have been at any point in the last 10 years.
2: And, and what will that mean and that for mean, average Joe? That
0: will mean that, well, very little for average Joe. What that will mean for markets is businesses mm. that were based on buying bonds. Now, a bond is an asset where the price of the bond is an inverse relation to the rate of interest. So if the rate of interest is going down, the price of bonds is going up. So what you had to do 25 years ago or 30 years ago is buy all bonds and just wait for the rate of interest to go down, and the price of the bond will go up. What Paul is saying is now the rate of interest interest is going up, so prices of bonds will fall for a long time. And therefore, the bond market itself will go into a bear market for a long time. That's... That's good news for the economy. Oh, okay. that's good news for the economy because it right. means the economy is running hot. Okay. The economy is running at its capacity. Right? right. We're not worried about deflation, right? Yeah. We're not worried about always forcing down prices. We're saying, you know what? We're going to allow prices rise a wee bit and right. wages rise a wee bit. And again, what it's trying to do is rebalance the mix in economics between profits and wages. So in every company, right, you have the amount of revenue that goes. Profits and the amount of revenue, X cost, that goes to wages, right? For years and years and years, profits have expanded as wages have contracted. Now we're in a phase where the pendulum is swinging back towards wages. And at every juncture of the economic cycle, wages will be higher than profits. And this is a hallelujah moment for Main Street, for the average person, because it means that of every good sold, the return to labor, the bit that comes back to the worker is going to be higher than the bit that comes back to the owner. And that's, it's kind of Marxism without Marx.
1: i